Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. But I will tell you, one of the happiest days of my life uh, outside of family and, and kind of professional life was the first day I walked in here and I looked around and I said, holy shit, what I just spent 18 months doing just gave these 14 people healthcare. Just gave these 14 people something to be excited to work on. Just gave these 14 people a community to come into every day doing something that is super cool. There's nothing more rewarding than that, right? Like, I don't care how many dollars you're going to give me. And, you know, that's kind of what gets me excited and keeps me going every day. So I think it depends on what you define as compensation. Look Up listeners, welcome back to the latest episode of the Look Up podcast. I'm your host, Mark Weinstein. And as always, starting off with a huge thank you to all of you who've been following along with this journey over the last, man, two years now since I launched Look Up. We've got over 67 episodes, uh, eight of eight undiscovered episodes, if anyone ever finds my computer uh, in Los Angeles that had those uh, on the prison industrial complex. But we might run that back. We'll see. I've got a two-part episode for you this time. I had a conversation with my friend, my mentor for now almost 11 years, Benjamin Shirelli. Ben is the founder and CEO of Celebre, which is a cellular agriculture company that is ushering in the next great industrial revolution by treating biology as a manufacturing technology, turning cells into specialized, sustainable factories for the manufacture of globally significant products at scale. We'll get more into that later. Specifically in the second episode, when we kind of dive into Celebre and the work that Ben's doing to manufacture cannabinoids um, to treat mental health, to help make a more sustainable supply chain uh, for the cannabis industry, uh, and also to make CBD products uh, and related products more accessible to the everyman and woman um, who don't necessarily have access to the highest quality of medicine. In that front, they're flipping supply chains on their head. Super interesting. But in this episode, this first half, um, and the reason why this ended up being two parts is that Ben and I dove into really like his, his interpersonal, um, superpowers. Ben is the type of guy that will respond to anyone in need of help. Like literally, you could test it out. If you want to DM him on LinkedIn, uh, where is really like the bulk of his social media for support. He'll support you. This is someone that if I reached out to him, uh, to tell him that I'm working on a new project without even asking, he would immediately make 15 introductions for me, uh, to the people that he thought would be the most impactful for the project. Um, closest thing I've seen to altruism, uh, in kind of like this, zero sum world that many of us live in. And we lean into that a little bit. We lean into kind of like the reciprocity that comes from that, the reasons why he does it. Um, if he's doing it truly altruistically, or if there's a debt that comes, we also talk about, uh, investment banking and both of our experience there. Uh, we both connected working at Jeffries and company, which had a really unique culture. And we chat about that a bit. So for those of you young folks that are interested in an investment banking career, you could check that out. And then a, a little bit about entrepreneurship at the tail end of this episode. Uh, before episode two, when we really start to lean into kind of the future of biomanufacturing technology, Celebre, and the work that they're doing. So I really hope that you enjoy this episode. Um, if you do, give it a, give it a shout on social media, uh, give it a like on iTunes or Spotify, uh, and please share it with your friends. Uh, it always helps. You know, a lot of work and effort goes into these episodes. Um, there's a lot of time offered by some really incredible people like Ben. So really appreciate all of you and your support continuing on. So without any more from me, this is the first part of a two-parter with my friend, my guide, 
my Sherpa, Benjamin Shirelli. All right, Ben Shirelli, welcome to the Look Up Podcast, man. This has been a long time in the making, almost 11 years now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Way to age us both. Nice job. Yeah, I know. It's crazy, like, knowing that I've been working for over a decade at this point. It's just like, I still feel like a kid. Sometimes well, you still kind of are, and that's what's wonderful about you, brother. You think so? Yeah, you're still ready to just, you know, have fun and live life for the things that really matter, you know? I feel like that's kind of how I feel about you as well. So maybe that's why we uh, we vibe. I thought it was because we both loved investment banking and couldn't get enough of it. Ooh, yes. You literally just led me right into my first question. <laughs> Amazing. Um, yeah, so we, we, we met, I mean, for listeners. So Ben was, were you a VP at the time I joined or were you an associate? Just a lowly associate, my friend. You were just a lowly associate. And then by the time I I left, I think you were a VP. So this was Jeffries and Company, investment banking, circa 2010. Financial crisis had just passed. The healthcare team from UBS Investment Banking was poached by Jeffries in a scandalous exit where one of the members of the team allegedly USB drived the whole UBS banking folio over to Jeffries. And I had interned there previously. And the culture was unique at Jeffries, you know, middle market bank, mostly restructuring shop. By the the time I came back for my full-time gig, it had been completely run down by you healthcare investment bankers. And it was a totally different kind of culture. Let's just put it that way. Um, how did you become an investment banker? You just, you just don't, you don't strike me as the type. Are you saying I don't look good in a suit? Is that what you're trying you look, to say to me? You look fantastic in a suit. And if I look pretty, you can't see him. He's got, he's got the comb over hair right now. He's, yeah. he's looking pretty damn good. Yeah. And yeah, you, you got it. You got the suit, but like, you know, let's talk First, I want to talk about investment banking and your path to investment banking. And then I want to kind of take it from investment banking to where you are now and like, you know, basically cellular agriculture, synthetic biology, you know, these things and investment banking don't necessarily seem to jive, at least for the average person like myself. So I'm just really curious, like maybe it's like, let's tell, let's weave the tale of Ben. Yeah, sure. Well, they, to to let you know, they don't they don't jive for the below average person like me either. So, um, I I ended up I ended up finding myself at banking, um, and I was not part of the scandalous UBS crowd. I was actually the second hire by that team when they came over to Jeffries. So I was not kind of entrenched in that culture. Um, so needless to say, it was a culture shock for me as well. Uh, in that because it was kind of. It was kind of work above everything, right? And and I'm much more kind of relationship and people above everything. So it was definitely a culture shock for me. Um, I ended up in banking because I was, you know, I was just a dumb kid who loved to play basketball and happened to be good at math. So I went to engineering school and <laughs> and I was like, I'm not going to be too good at a desk doing, you know, AutoCAD drawing. So I could probably find something better to do. Um, And I'm from Pittsburgh, born and raised, and I was looking at business schools and Carnegie Mellon was just a great business school with a lot of engineers kind of turned business folks there. Uh, David Tepper is the is the namesake for the school, the business school now who now owns the Carolina Panthers and is arguably the best investor of all time. Um, Sorry, Warren. But uh, (laughs) I ended up I ended up going there. And then I said, well, what am I going to do afterwards? And I didn't know enough. Right. I'm just, you know, first generation. Dad was born in Italy. I was in a steel mill when I was growing up. Like, I didn't know the world. Right. I just grew up in Pittsburgh. So everybody said, oh, you make a lot of money in investment banking and it's a pretty awesome job and you meet a lot of cool people. You might as well try it. So I, you know, I moved to New York to really to really try and do that. Um, And within eight months, I realized this job is I mean, you make a lot of money, so it's hard to, you know, not say, wow, Ben, this is a very privileged thing to say that you had one of the hardest jobs to get on the planet, but it was literally the worst job in the history of jobs. I mean, it's just utterly, um, utterly painful to do it every day just because it's intellectually kind of mind numbing, but also the kinds of people that you run across just were not 
salt of the earth, great human beings, right? I mean, and and I think you would attest to to that as well. So I knew pretty quickly that I didn't want to do it forever. Um, made a move from Jeffries to JP Morgan, um, literally just to upgrade the business card, right? Uh, the way I tell the story is <laughs> I wanted my mom to know who I worked for, right? And and if you went and asked a mom, who's Jeffries? Only your mother and my mother would know who that is, right? But everybody knows JP Morgan and JP Morgan Chase. Um, and, you know, the whole time in healthcare, in biotech, got hired by one of my clients um, to move out here to San Diego to try and solve for the opioid epidemic, which is a whole nother uh, mess of a story in and of itself. Um, but that company was doing about 400 million a year in EBITDA, which for, for your listeners who don't know financial speak, that's basically the cash flow, the earnings of the business. So it was a massive business. EBITDA, earnings yeah. before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. EBITDA. And now- now let's one of my fellow analysts was named EBITDA. <laughs> I think yeah. you might have named him EBITDA. Actually. I think that's I think that's true. Um, <laughs> that's right. That's right. I uh, and now that everybody's fallen asleep. Um, but needless to say, way to say that this is a really big company. And literally 10 months after moving to San Diego with my, uh, my wife, my two month old child, my dog, Steve, uh, we took the company through bankruptcy and we literally knew nobody out here. And I got lucky. Enough to be networked with some really interesting people um, who got me connected to a guy named Dr. Craig Venter. And uh, if you've never heard the name, Craig was actually the guy who sequenced the first human genome. He was the competing arm of the human genome project kind of in the private sector and announced it with Bill Clinton and the head of the NIH, uh, one of the most famous scientists in the world. Um, Craig is phenomenally brilliant and phenomenally inappropriate in the same breath. And and that may be why (laughs) why I hit it off with him. But he had a, a, a number of ventures and one of them was around this idea of biology as a manufacturing technology. Um, and and I thought to myself, well, that's kind of an interesting way to think about the world. Uh, but it's kind of correct, right? I mean, we just got through a global pandemic. And if you think about what the cells in your body are doing, those cells are seeing a threat and manufacturing me- medicines to keep you safe and keep you healthy. If you walk outside and you see flowers, those flowers, those cell factories in that flower are producing fragrances. Um, so literally every cell on the planet is nothing more than a sophisticated little mi- micro, uh, micro factory that is taking nutrients and turn the, turning those nutrients into stuff. And we were right at the precipice of being able to treat biology almost like a programming language. So DNA is, is what's known as the code of life, A, C's, T's, and G's instead of ones and zeros in the, in the computer world. And we can manipulate and rearrange those letters to literally program the physical world and turn cells that used to manufacture ethanol, like a cell like yeast that you would use in a brewery, and change that genetic code and change the machinery in that cell so that when you fed it sugar, instead of making beer, it made insulin or it made a fragrance. Um, and it had this has pretty profound impacts. And you hear, you know, our, our society is kind of dominated by tech, right? Social media, B2B SaaS, AI, um, you know, brain interfaces with computers, our buddy Brian Johnson at Kernel. And what I tell everybody is, look, that stuff's kind of cool, but the real next industrial revolution is biology. It's how do we make stuff fundamentally differently and do so in a way that is harmonious with ecosystems, minimizing our footprint to maximize our output. And biology is that. Um, and I think what we're doing at Celebre, um, you know, I, I ended up leaving leaving Craig because I came across the cannabis sector and uh Interesting sector for a guy like me, because I don't even drink beer or wine. Um, and I, I certainly <laughs> don't smoke anything. My my only vice is I was is just going to say, there's a lot of people in the cannabis sector who also don't drink beer or wine, but they do smoke the sheeps. Yeah, I, uh, I drink a lot of coffee. That's pretty much it for me. Um, but I... I got to learn the plant through uh, a very large pharmaceutical company that recently got bought for about seven billion bucks called GW Pharmaceuticals that had the first ever FDA approved medicine derived from the cannabis plant. And I got to spend a whole day with them because their largest shareholder was an old friend and he introduced me. And I came out of the building and I called uh, who is now my partner, uh, our CTO Spiros, and excuse my French, I said, holy shit, dude, the stoners were right. 
this plant cures everything. Like I could not believe the data, cancer to pain, to anxiety, all kinds of different medicines that were derived from plants. And the more you look at nature as medicine, the more you realize that the reason that we don't have products that use kind of these beautiful molecules, this beautiful chemistry, this beautiful biology that we have in nature is that the pharmaceutical industry can't patent it because mother nature made it. So the way that you can bring these medicines to market is to find a more sustainable and economical way to produce them at scale. And that's where I decided um, after being told we're not drug dealers next topic at synthetic genomics to, to go out on my own and found Salibre to fundamentally change the way we make plant-based medicines. Wow. So there's, there's so much there. Cause we just went through like your, like the last 10 ish years of your life arc. Yeah. So I'm going to like, I'm going to rewind that because I think we're going to talk about Celebre and um, there's a lot there's I want to kind of end on that because that's the future. Sure. Right. So let's go. Let's circle back to the past. So like, you know, you had some negative things to say about investment banking. I also have had some negative things to say about investment banking. I want to um, think about like, do you think do you think that investment banking in any way prepared you for the work that you're doing today? Because I. I sometimes think about this and uh, the answer I've come to is I'm not sure. Um, it might have even, it, it, I don't know. What do you think? Do you think that investment banking is a good kind of like preparatory experience for someone that wants to enter the working world? So here's where I think it was most interesting. When you're in that seat, um, you are working on the project that for your client is head and heels, the most important thing going on at that company, whether it's an IPO or getting acquired or rolling in a new business that could fundamentally change what that company is due, doing it, what you're doing is extremely important for the people you're working with and for. In addition, you're not getting access to some middle manager, right? You're getting access to the gal or guy that is running a $4 billion enterprise and they don't get in those seats for no reason. So you mm -hmm. get exposure in banking. I would say the work itself is intellectually mind numbing and anybody that can plug a number into Excel could do the actual work. I find the fascinating part about it to be the people that you meet. Like how often are you gonna be able to be on a plane with a couple of guys who started the genomic revolution trying to take their company public. Or we worked with a company called Novacure, who what I would encourage everybody to go look at, it's spelled N-O-V-O-C-U-R-E, technology out of Israel where they figured out that you could tune frequencies to kill cancer cells without wow. having to put poison in your body, right? And it was literally just as efficacious as chemo for some therapeutic areas. You're never going to see that stuff going and getting you know, a job in accounting at, you know, name your fortune 500 company. Right. So I think what it did prepare me for, um, was number one, it, be humble. Cause there are clearly people who know a lot about a lot of different things and much more than you will ever know. Um, but also how do you interact with somebody who's literally a, an expert in what they do. They've been doing it for 50 years, right? Like, how do you have a normal conversation with, with somebody like that? How do you peel out the information that you think is going to be valuable for you? And then lastly, how do you help those people? So, you know, the funny thing is a lot of those bankers are very transactional in nature. Um, and I think the biggest takeaway for me was not to be transactional in nature with my relationships. Never. I think the biggest thing I learned from banking was where I was going to add value to clients or where I was going to add value to people was to literally step into their shoes, put them first and say, how can I help this person? How can I connect a small dot for them that incrementally gets them closer to where they want to be? And that's the one thing that I carried forward from banking uh, into my life. And I'll tell you, it's the single biggest thing that's, that's changed my life personally, um, is just kind of taking that viewpoint of the world and, and that viewpoint of relationships. Yeah, that's a really interesting take. I, um, I, I actually had a question prepared for us because, you know, on your LinkedIn profile, you have connector, which for any other human being that I didn't know on this earth, if I saw a connector, I'd be like, who is this guy? What is he connector? Like, what's he talking about? You know, like, but knowing you, like you are, you know, 
a super connector even. And I know you wouldn't put that on your on your LinkedIn profile. So maybe I'll I'll um endorse endorse you or whatever people do on LinkedIn. But like one thing I've noticed is that you will at least for me and in our relationship, you know, like we probably spent like five or six years kind of like apart, you know, not having connected. It was a very, very dark time in my life. I'm not gonna probably lie, not yeah, the worst. Yeah. Joyful presence. But um but you know this when we renewed our connection um and started chatting more like it was just like immediate like spring into action like how can i help you like what what do you need like who can i connect you to like what's you know like what what kind of work do you want to do like i was definitely in a place of like figuring out my next career moves which is probably like an every 3 year maybe even two and a half of me honest year kind of thing for me like what am i going to do next the existential crisis and you kind of jumped into action and i've seen you do that like across time for pretty much everyone that you connect with. Like, I don't even see you setting up filters for yourself before you help someone. So like how, you know, where does this come from? One, how do you find the time and energy? Does it ever, you know, do you ever shut it, shut it down and say like, yo, like I need to chill with like connecting all these people. Cause I have a company to run and, you know, family to raise and all this stuff. Um, I just want to want to hear you talk a little bit about, you know, this idea of being a connector. Yeah. I mean, I guess what's life about, right? I mean, I, that's where I would start. And, you know, it, it, we're all, it, it's going to be over for all of us soon. So, you know, what are you doing with your short amount of time here? I think one of the things we struggle with as humans um, that I've kind of gotten over, and it was probably through the loss of my brother, which, you know, I lost my brother in 2001, is... Um, what you do and what I do really doesn't matter all that much, right? We're kind of a blip on the radar. And actually, it's pretty funny if you want to take it from the individual to humanity as a whole. If we look back to what happened during COVID-19, when the United when the whole world decided, hey, we're shutting down, stay inside. Literally within two weeks, there was no smog in LA and dolphins were swimming through the canals in Venice. The earth was like, great, they're gone. Let's get back to normal. Right. Like how little <laughs> like how, like we're worried about plastic in the ocean, but literally like the world didn't care. It went right back and started healing itself when we left. And it makes you realize like how how insignificant humanity is and how insignificant, you know, each of us is as an individual. And I guess my coping mechanism for dealing with that, um, that kind of reality is to say, you know, what am I trying to do on earth? And I think this comes from, you know, our parents, I, our parents' generation was the generation and we're starting to get away from that, that said, you know what, I don't care if I'm my kid's best friend. I don't care if they even like me that much. My job is to make sure that they have a better life and they have security than I had as a child. And I'm going to keep pushing that legacy forward. Um, and I think when I think about what legacy am I going to leave my two boys, um, for me, it is all about how did you help your neighbor? And your neighbor could be you across the country in New York or, or, or Puerto Rico or wherever you're residing to now. Or it could be some random guy who reached out to me from India wanting to offer me SEO services. And I spend 10 minutes with them to say, your pitch is bad. Here's what you need to do. Like, I can tell that this is spam, right? Um, because you're eventually touching all kinds of people, right? And you know, it's funny because I, you know, I have a bunch of folks in my network who, if I named them, your listeners would know those people's names. I won't mention them. And the reason I know them is because I'll reach out to them and connect them with somebody randomly that I think they would be interested in knowing that I think they would get value from. And I literally never ask them anything in return. I, I am obsessive with not asking people for anything um, and, and, on, and genuinely not wanting anything, right? Um, I, I think... The legacy that I want to leave my kids is one of there are 2000 people who your father helped either tremendously or in a little way somewhere in the world. And if you're ever in need of something, those people are going to return your call because dad left that legacy for you. Like, I don't care if they have a million dollar home or they drive nice cars or they get to go to Harvard, blah, 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 blah. Like, who really cares about that? My the, the legacy. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, what, what, what does it really matter? Right. I think the legacy of, of real relationships, real connections is infinitely more valuable than a dollar, maybe not a Bitcoin, but, but certainly a dollar. Right. 
<laughs> you had to drop the Bitcoin line yeah. there, didn't you? Of course, of course. You. No, I, I I feel that. I mean, it's it's interesting. I mean, it also. Hmm. It's because you're not asking for anything in return, but it's funny because I think about you know like Robert Cialdini's like influence, right? And like I think about kind of the psychological weight that individuals carry and like these little debts that humans accumulate in their minds, right? Like the, the Buddhist monk comes up to you on the street and hands you, you know, the, the um, peace card and it's like a gift, but then they turn around and ask you for a donation. And like, there's like a psychological element of, of humanity that like reciprocity is key because humans don't want to be in debt. Um, and so I guess like being a little bit cynical here, like how much of what you do is like knowing that there's this psychology, because I don't, I don't get that sense from you at all. Like you've actually never turned around and been like, yo, Mark, I need something. I need this favor. You actually have it in all these years. So I don't know. It's, uh, it, it's like, it, it, it almost, I'm coming to the question of like, is there such thing as altruism? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, what's funny is I, you're, you're talking and I'm like, huh, there's probably something to that. Um, I'm never in debt. Like, not in debt from, you know, I have a mortgage and all that stupid stuff. But I mean, from a relationship perspective, I'm literally never in debt. And, and maybe that's part of the happiness, right? Not having that extra burden of, oh my God, these three people did amazing things for me and I need to pay them back in some way, shape or form. Um, but when I think about helping others, it's, it's truly not for myself. Like I get a ton of benefit out of it. I I'll tell you that when I connect you with someone who I think will be interesting on your podcast and you guys hit it off and maybe those connections, nothing makes me happier than that. Right. Because you can see that the little thing that you did caused an incremental impact for, for somebody else to be better. But, um, you know, maybe in the back of my mind without even thinking about it consciously, it's my way of saying, you know, I have a lot going on how do I unburden myself from these other debts that that may be around me? And maybe the way to do that is to, you know, have a surplus of of this relationship you, capital. I guess, you know, just kind of continuing on this thread, do you have a hard time receiving? Like if I were to be like, yo, Ben, I'm going to connect you to like five people for your company and your capital raise. Would you feel comfortable with that? Like, or would you then feel like you need to turn around and be like, Actually, yo, Mark, thanks for the introductions. Let me then connect you to like these 15 people because you did me such a solid, right? Like, are you comfortable with receiving in the way that you give? Because you give without expectation, but would you receive in the same way? No, but I wouldn't deny it in the way you're talking about. So okay. if you were to connect me with five people, what I would do with those five people is I'd spend the first 10 or 15 minutes talking about them on the call for the Salibre Rays. And I would take notes on where I could help those people and where interesting connections for them might happen. And I would pay it forward to you mm. by helping the people you introduced me to so that they come back and say, wow, that was a great intro for Mark. That dude actually really helped me out on more than just hearing about his cool company. Right? Big, yes. And I know you would. And I appreciate that. <laughs> Biggest, what's your biggest pet peeve or what's the kind of like most frustrating thing that you've experienced after making one of these introductions for someone? Lack of responsiveness. Lack of responsiveness. I hate when people, I literally respond to every single spam email I get on LinkedIn. Everyone. They're annoying as hell. How do you do it? Because I, I'm thinking to myself, that person is trying to build something and they're taking the time and they're going to send 10,000 of these and no one's going to respond. I'm going to be the dude to say, where do you literally find the time? Like there is not enough time in a day to respond to emails from people that I want to respond to, let alone to like the thousands of spam LinkedIn inbox messages (laughs) and things of that nature. I don't go to bed. So once the kids, I'm up until 1am, 2am, I can't turn my head off and you know, I'm just, I'm trying to respond to people. I think, you know, the big thing on the responsiveness piece is really just if it's something material, right? Like if someone is reaching out to you because they're raising a series A and they want you to consider you as an investor, or they think you might be helpful to them, not responding to that person and having them write you four emails and just not having the courtesy to say, Hey, you know what seems really interesting, but like, I'm not going to be helpful here. I'm not an early stage investor, or I don't know that space. Well, um, you know, it, 
that's disheartening to me because I, I don't understand why your 30 seconds is worth more than all the work I'm trying to put in to build something new. Right. And founders, email, I just had a guy email me the other day that actually is doing something. I know you love Brian Johnson and, and Colonel and kind of those blood, those brain computer interfaces and figuring out how the mind works in normality with psychedelics, with all of this, all this chemistry. I had a, I had a kid reach out to me randomly who has kind of a software backend to that where it's actually invasive, not non-invasive. And I got him like eight investor meetings, right? I don't know him from a hole in the ground, but he wrote me a note and was like, Hey, are you an investor? And I'm like, no, but this looks kind of cool. I, I have like 12 people that might be interested. I kicked them the deck. I made the intro and I got the hell out of the way. Right. Um, so for me, the responsiveness piece is, is really hard. Also, if you're in a work environment, right? Like you're just at a company, there's a hundred people in the company and someone is requesting something of you. Even if you're busy, have the courtesy to respond to that person and say, hey, you know what? I'm totally jammed for like the next three days. Let me revert on this in three days. If it's too long, I'm, I apologize. I just have too much. Or, hey, got your email. I'm going to finish something up right now and then I'll get after this and I'll get back to you soon. Because those people are planning something based on what they're asking of you, right? It's, it's as simple as home, right? Like, are you going to be home for dinner tonight, right? Because I'm planning the dinner on you being home at a certain time. And if you're not home at a certain time, then kids are needing, right? So it goes from business all the way to personal. And I think being responsive is really just a reflection of being cognizant that someone's time is the most important thing they have. And they're trying to allocate that time to maximize their happiness. Don't be the, don't be the road. I have to push back on Like, what about your time and the people that are, closest to you and dependent upon you, you know, do you feel that these kind of like one-off, you know, supports of strangers like eats into your, you know, your ability to kind of support your tribe, you know, your, your team, your family, these things. Who's your tribe? The people, the people closest to you, right? It's like all the of little us, right? ones that are for sure. I get that. Like we're global village, you know, it's mm -hmm. an abundant world, but like, I mean, they simply, we live in the age where anyone can, can, can anyone can take lay claim on your attention. They can lay siege on your attention. So like a just because a random person, yes, they're part of the global village, but just because they message me on LinkedIn and they declare that they, that I should give them my attention. If I'm not in control of where my attention flows, because I'm just going to give it to every single person that asks of it, you know, like who, who is in control of my attention? Like, yeah, <laughs> no, it's a, it's a really good point. Um, you know, what I, what I would say is, uh, first I don't have Twitter. I don't have Instagram. I don't have TikTok. So my face isn't in my phone. A lot of the times I would venture to guess that if everybody turned off their phone, they would have a lot more time to actually help real human beings. So that's first, Respect. uh, number two, I spent, what's your, what's your phone time? Do you, do you have your phone time on your phone? Do you measure it at all? Uh, no. But you probably when, do email on there. So you probably I, have a few hours. I do email and I correspond with the boss at home uh, on stuff, <laughs> stuff that's needed all day. Um, and, um, you know, when I'm on calls, I'm looking stuff up on my phone as to not, you know, type on the computer. But uh, to, to try and make sure that I'm, I'm connecting the right dots and conversations I'm having. But I would say that's first and foremost, like, where are you really allocating your time? And and look, this is partially selfish, right? Like, don't think I'm some saint. I get great joy out of this. I get great joy out of saying, hey, I connected this person to this person and they had a really interesting conversation and they liked each other, right? Um, you know, the, my my friend Jack, whose book is right here, Why Smart People Make Bad Food Choices. I think I am. Yeah, he's coming, on, he's coming on the podcast. Dude, you're going to love Jack. He's the best. Uh, it, I met the guy who invented the iPod, Tony Fadal, who, who, uh, who also invented Nest. And he was doing all kinds of stuff in the future of food. And I was like, you need to meet Jack Abobo. Like Jack is the best. He's a food futurist state department. Like he's the man. Um, and Tony and Jack met and Jack emails me and he goes, dude, what the hell? Like you have the most random <laughs> weird interaction. And, 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 and like Jack and I have become friends because, you know, anytime anybody's doing something in food or food safety or any of that stuff, I'm like, you got to talk to Jack. He's like the smartest guy on this topic there is. Um, you know, and that just brings me such joy that those two people who are amazing would have never met if it wasn't for me, likely would have never met 
if it wasn't free, right? Like how, what is more joyful than that? I mean, it's fascinating, right? Because at the end of the day, that's what investment banking was. Just kind of bringing it back to this first thing is like investment banking is as you get closer to the top of your group or your industry vertical, it's only about your Rolodex. It's only about the relationships that you've built over time. So I think actually you would have made an exceptional senior investment banker, you know, because you are connecting and also you're connecting people in a way that is just joyful and that is true. And, and that leads to a lot of flow in between kind of like the spaces. And I find that outside of investment banking, you know, there aren't very, very, very many industries in the world where like the connector gets compensated for their connectiveness, right? Like I find the role of the connector or super connector or the people that it comes naturally for, because I also consider myself to be someone that generally, while I don't respond to every LinkedIn message, I like to like be like, oh, you should meet this person because they're doing this and you're doing that. And I want to put you together. There's going to be some awesome mind melding that happens. Well, you're not a psychopath like I am. I, I yeah, you're, totally, you're yeah. a little bit on the extreme of it, which <laughs> yeah. is cool, which is why I wanted to lean into it a bit. But, um, but I think, as you said, a lot of folks in that space, it's transactional. So like, they're not seeing it as, oh, this is like a human that I'm helping in a very important moment of their life. So taking it as a service. And I think when you flip to service, um, maybe it makes things like this easier. Or it makes them feel less like work or more joyful. We only have an hour here. So I'm going to, I'm going to move the conversation in a different direction, but it looks like you want to say something real quick. Well, the only thing I would say to that is it depends on what your compensation is. Right. So what am I trying to build? Am I trying to build wealth? Or am I trying to build legacy? And those two things can go together, but they can also be very divergent. And what I my compensation is legacy for my kids. It's relationships with people that stretch deeper than I made you a dollar. Right. It's genuinely this person gives a shit about me and would be there for me if if I needed them. Right. So for me, my compensation is legacy. And then I would go to the other end of that and say, you know, investment banking, I could have made a heck of a lot more money than I would on the corporate side trying to build um, there. Like I always tell my co-founders, there's easier ways to make money than early stage biotech, right? Uh, you know, really, really difficult to do. But I will tell you one of the happiest days of my life uh, outside of family and, and kind of professional life was the first day I walked in here and I looked around and I said, holy shit, what I just spent 18 months doing just gave these 14 people health care just gave these 14 people something to be excited to work on, just gave these 14 people a community to come into every day doing something that is super cool. There's nothing more rewarding than that, right? Like, I don't care how many dollars you're going to give me. Um, and, and, you know, that's kind of what gets me excited and keeps me going every day, right? So I think it depends on what you define as compensation. Yeah, that's a great point. I think definitely I was defining compensation of the monetary variety because I, I have found, you know, in my past that, you know, definitely was not being, you know, effectively compensated for kind of these types of things, at least from a dollars and cents standpoint. And it can be tiresome, you know, if you're not having that joyful kind of demeanor that you have this natural capacity to, to, you know, find the bright side in things, but like, it can be tiresome for connectors to just constantly just be, you know, like you ever, sometimes someone can make an introduction, you can make an introduction and like, it's just forgotten, right? Like I once connected, um, I once connected a friend to a fund, right? And he was one of my former coworkers. I helped him get out of a shitty position, fund introduction, blah, blah, blah. And the guy like big leagues me all the time now. It's like, it's like the introduction never happened, you know? And it was great because I was with the CEO of the fund recently. I hadn't seen him in three years. And he was like, well, a lot of this is because you made the introduction. And I feel like there's a part of me, and maybe this is the ego, that's just like dying for that little bit of like, yo, like there was, the, you played this role, you know? Like I'm not like the, the little fairy in the background that's happy to just like all the time, like my ego gets in it too. I want, I want people to be like, yo, like, thanks, like good big ups for that intro because it actually had an impact. It's not always enough for me to be like, I had an impact. <laughs> you know? yeah. Well, and I think a lot of human beings have trouble giving credit to others, right? They, people tend to have an over overinflated view of self, right? And, and you know what yes. Yeah. And what happens is self included. <laughs> no, get out of here. Your beard's fantastic. No. I, um, you know, I think I, but seriously, I think sometimes people get into that situation and it's not malicious. They're like, well, great. He made the intro. I did the rest of the work. Like I got the job. I ended up succeeding when I was here. Like, you know, while that connection was good, it wasn't the be all end all. 
overinflated view of self as to where like, you know, full disclosure, you are an investor in my company. Now, if I ever lost your money, I would work for the rest of my life to pay it back no matter what the sum was. Right. Cause I just, I couldn't, I couldn't live in kind of that debt. And maybe this goes full circle to what we were talking about, that one of the reasons I'm kind of happy and happy to do these things. And it's a little bit of a coping mechanism with me is I just never want to be indebted to folks. Right. Like it was hard. It's hard for me to take money from, from. But okay. Friends. But this is, I've, we have to keep going on this now because the flip side of that man is that if you think that it, receiving that is indebted, is you're indebted to them, then there's a part of you that must think that they're indebted to you when you make the introductions. No. Right. Mm-mm. I just but don't think on. about it that way. I really you're don't. thinking about it the other way no. when someone's helping you. I do it. I do it with the hope that if my kids ever need anything, some of those people will be there for them. That's that's what I, and it's it's totally hope, right? And and I don't care if they ever do it for me. I'm fine to live, you know, in a tent wherever. Um, you know, I, it doesn't, it doesn't, it, none of this, none of this stuff really that. matters to me. You know, I'm just, I, and by, and by the way, like I get what you were saying about banking and how like moving up relationships, yada, yada. I also just love to build things, right? There's something, there's something really empowering about being able to take literally ideation and form something real from it. Right. And I think, um, you know, from my perspective, the, the relationships are the same way. There's, there's, it's a really interesting thing to say, I'm talking to someone and in my head, I'm thinking this person needs to know this person and here's why. And taking that ideation and seeing it through. And then some of those things blossom into really cool companies or really cool ideas or really cool books or really cool stories. And you're like, you know what? I had a part in that. That's pretty awesome. Right. And, and I don't need to get yeah. compensated for it. Who cares? But And here you are, right? Like, so one of the interesting points that you made at the very beginning of this conversation, when you were talking about Vetner and, you know, maybe it wasn't him that said this explicitly, but you were at Synthetic Genomics and, um, you know, he said, we're not in, someone said, we're not in the drug making business. We're not drug dealers. Next topic. And it was not Craig. Um, and I won't say who it was. Okay. That's fine. So we're not drug dealers. Next topic. And here you are basically seeing what you're working on in synthetic genomics and the ca- the cannabis industry, kind of the rise of the cannabis industry, and you're making that connection that those two things need to be kind of paired. And so that's right, like the space between the connective tissue that you have for relationships, you also have for ideas. And so now you took it and you ran with it and you started your company. And, you know, that company sits in the intersection. It sits in the in-between, which is super cool, but it's also extremely challenging because as we spoke about before um, we hopped on the line, you know, like investors in particular are, are pattern matching engines. And I experienced this as well when I was working on Steward, which was a company you helped me a lot with. Um, when you're in the in-between, that's where so much value can be created, but also you can't necessarily convince the biotech investor to invest in the consumer company or the consumer investor, the cannabis investor to invest in the biotech company. And so you basically squeeze your universe into this small, small, small little space. So I'm just blabbering, but really I want to kind of understand like, one, the decision to become an entrepreneur and to start a company at the intersection of two different ideas. And then two, kind of the road since. Yeah. So, uh, I, I I think we glamorize the idea of entrepreneurs too much. The it, you know LinkedIn is really the only platform I use, and because you know what makes me happy is just connecting people for the purposes of kind of growing their careers so that they can in, enjoy life a little bit more. Um, but like literally everybody's an entrepreneur, CEO, founder. Like every single person has that title, head of X or or whatever. Um, for me, it wasn't it wasn't about being my own boss or starting my own company. It was. Hey, me and a couple of guys had an idea. The company we were at didn't want to do that idea. It's not every day that an industry comes out of prohibition, right? Um, it would be crazy not to make a run at this, right? Uh, and I and I think for for me, it was much less about being my own boss and being an entrepreneur and being held on a pedestal, just more this is a good idea. And we're going to help a lot of people with this. Um, and it, you know, when you when you look at kind of what we're doing, it was helping planet, helping patients, helping animals, 
and literally helping the regulatory framework get built, I think, is what's going to ultimately happen here, even though people still don't quite understand what we're, what we're doing. So, you know, my life kind of got squeezed, you're right, into this area of people that that enjoy biology as a manufacturing technology and biotechnology and all we nerds. And then this entire industry that grew up literally skirting the law. I mean, every day I see something new crazy in this sector from the quote unquote professionals. And I'm just like, my God, how are you doing that? Um, you know, I went, I, it was funny. I got invited to speak at a conference, uh, called the new West conference, um, in, in Oakland, California, which is the epicenter of all cannabis to talk about kind of cannabis science and what's next. And there was a protest going on outside of the hotel where it was, where the, where the event was taking place because the workers wanted to be paid more money. And the manager of the hotel was literally apologizing to everybody in line at the conference. I'm so sorry for the noise, blah, blah, blah. And he got to me and I was like, do you realize what kind of conference this is? And he said, no, what do you mean? And I said, he said, it's agriculture, right? And I said, bud, I said, this is a cannabis conference. And from what little I've learned, Half the conference is going to be picketing with your people and you're here apologizing to them. Like, just give it 10 minutes. And no joke, I can't even make this up. As I'm saying this, the head of the conference walks out with two pounds of weed with a person behind him carrying table and chairs, a couple people behind him, and went out and started rolling joints for the protesters and banging on drums. And I'm like, I called my co-founder and I'm like, what on earth have we gotten ourselves into? Right? Like, I... uh I have, uh, I, I've been invited many times, but I've never been to Burning Man. This is not my scene, right? This is not what I, not what I do. Um, so, so it was, it was, it was super, yeah, I probably would. I mean, it's super, it was super interesting, right? But now I find myself in this total new world of people that I never would have interacted with. I mean, you know, there's a founder, Scott Jennings at an edible company here in California called Pantry. Um, if you are an edible consumer, by the way, listeners, and you can get your hands on Pantry, you won't go to anything else. He's, they, he literally makes the best products, um, period. They're, they're utterly fantastic. But he's an amazing human being. And I never would have met him had I not made this jump, right? Um, you know, I had a call the other day with uh, a gentleman named Barry, who runs Jim Cameron's family office. Guy made Terminator. He also made the science fiction piece Game Changers, right? Um, mm. it, I never would have met these people if I wouldn't have made this crazy jump into the into this sector, right? I, I got to meet the guy who runs the family office for Bo Wrigley, whose family founded Wrigley Gum and sold it to, to Mars, right? So, you know, I think no matter where you go, you meet really interesting people. And I think the one thing about the cannabis space is it's so early and it's such a disaster and it's such the wild west <laughs> that I can't imagine anywhere else where you're going to learn more about business, relationships, people, um, when you get burned, how to, how to come out of it. I mean, it, it is literally all the life lessons you could possibly want to teach your kids wrapped into one industry. I mean, it's just complete insanity. I'm sure you see the same thing in crypto, right? Cause you've been in it for a long time. You end up meeting a lot of crazy people you would never met elsewhere. And you also see a lot of nutty stuff going on and, and you are able to now kind of decipher what is real and what is not in a much more intelligent, thoughtful and fast way. Right. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely um, I, I hear you on kind of the Wild West. I feel like whenever there's a gold rush, right, there's all sorts of characters that kind of show up um, at all different stages in the cycle. And, you know, cannabis and crypto have that in common. And I think there is a bridge between cannabis and crypto as well, which is, you know, this kind of um, gray area from a regulatory standpoint. And a lot of crypto actually finds its roots in people on, you know, on gray markets and black markets, frankly, like Silk Road. So there's quite an overlap. You know, you have some really interesting, you know, quote unquote investors in Bitcoin who basically got there because either A, they were, you know, they were playing poker, which actually um, dovetails quite nicely to trading crypto because a lot of the probabilities and things are, you know, that type of probabilistic thinking and Kelly criterion and bet sizing is you know, across both poker and crypto, but also um, people that are buying psychedelics, you know, that just needed Bitcoin to buy it on Silk Road. And they were buying Bitcoin at like, you know, $5, $10, whatever. Yeah. And <laughs> it's uh, a wallet full. Yeah, I should have brought psychedelics into it because now all the people that tried to rob folks in cannabis moved to psychedelics. Thank God we have a couple of rational players in, in that area. But um, yeah, yeah, it's an interesting space too.
Hello Lookup listeners, one final note before we go. Thank you again for tuning in. Going forward, we'll be releasing new episodes of Lookup every Wednesday morning, Eastern Time. If you're getting value from this podcast and you want to give back to support our future, please take a moment to contribute to our community on Patreon. Our Patreon contributors have access to some great additional perks, including one-on-one meditations with yours truly. I've shared the link in the show notes below the episode. You can also find the show notes to this and previous episodes on our website, www.thelookuppodcast.com. If you can't contribute at this time, there are other helpful ways to give back. You can share this episode on social media, tag me, and or leave a review on your favorite podcast app. Trust me, every review goes a long way. If you want more content, including more of my personal thoughts, you can follow me on social media. My handle on both Instagram and Twitter is at Wark Meinstein, W-A-R-C-M-E-I-N-S-T-E-I-N. Or you can subscribe to the Look Up Weekly newsletter on my website. I'm also very responsive to email, so feel free to send questions, booking inquiries, speaking requests, and sponsorship opportunities to marc at thelookuppodcast.com. Finally, for those of you that don't know, I lead virtual yoga, breathwork, and meditation classes, as well as one-on-one coaching and teaching sessions, which you can book from the website or my social media accounts. Thank you to Sam Palumbo and Patch Kid Music for the great intro and outro tunes and for the sound engineering. Thank you, brother. And thank you to all of you listeners for continuing to support the show, for tuning in, and I hope that you've been enjoying this journey as much as I have. 